We have a new report launching soon. It's a candid view of the very real challenges facing banks right now, from technology to new competitors to culture, and how they're all interlinked. We explain the intricacies of banking technology in simple terms, but without dumbing it down. And we give answers on the way forward. To get a link straight to your inbox as soon as it launches, please make sure you're subscribed to our newsletter. That's Fintech in 5. And you can head to bit.ly forward slash 11FS subscribe to do that now. And welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Simon Taylor. In today's episode, we want to talk about banking architecture and how bank technology is structured. We're going to deep dive into how the tech works today, challenges currently faced, opportunities with modern architecture, as well as how can specialists and partnerships really be played to a bank's advantage. They don't have to do everything themselves. We'll be talking about both the technology and, of course, the important cultural changes. To dive into this, we've got some fantastic guests. We have 11FS's own CTO, Ewan Silver. How are you doing, Ewan? I'm good, thanks, Simon. Yourself? Yeah, well, thank you. Joining us as well is Simon Vanskalina, the CTO and co-founder of Fronted. How's it going, Simon? Cheers, Simon. All good. Good, good. And, of course, uh, the legend that is Peter Hazelhurst, who is co-founder and CEO at Sinkterra. How are you doing, Peter? Hey, good morning. Doing great. How are you? Really well, thank you. Excited to get into the show. And it's not just going to be us today. We also caught up with Kristen Brown, who's the Global Financial Services Strategy and Solutions Lead at Google Cloud. Uh, She can't be with us for this bit of the show, but she's going to give us some thoughts later on in the discussion. All righty, let's start with some of the challenges that banks have faced, some of the headwinds that they're leaning into. You and you always bring up Conway's Law. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and, and some of the history of how banks got to where they are today? Yeah, so Conway's Law is sort of a, an apocryphal thing, I think, came out of a sort of a hippie in the 60s who was sort of talking about how organizations uh, impact the way software is designed. And he made the observation that uh, your software architecture reflects the organization that builds it. So if you have a, you know, a, a team, a, a one-person team, they'll typically build a, a, a one a monolithic-type operation. If you have two teams working on it, you'll end up with two services and so on and so forth. I think this is important because it, it, it fundamentally impacts how technology has been built over time and you know the way that startups build their systems and the structure their organizations means they end up building systems in fundamentally different ways. I think from my perspective, if you look at banks over the past 50, 50 odd years, they were, you know, their architecture was when they first started cutting edge. They were the they were the leaders in technology, right? But they've ended up building monolithic silos, you know, your retail bank is clearly different to your to your wealth management arm and your credit arm and so on and so forth. And actually the Conway's law part here is important because the, the organizational structure, the, the processes that the banks put on it, force people to, to work in those silos. So actually they, they then bundle everything together and over, you know, because banks work as typically as projects as opposed to a to a startup which will which will have feature driven teams, these projects they tend to bolt stuff on over time which makes sense. But after 50 years, you've got this sort of prehistoric Cambrian-style architecture where stuff has just been compressed at the bottom. I think it's called stratolithic, not monolithic. 
It's a pain, whatever it is, Simon. <laughs> or maybe macrolithic. Neolithic. <laughs> neolithic, yeah. Yeah, neolithic. <laughs> it's lithic, one way or another. My favourite metaphor for this was, uh, it's, it's David, the CEO of 11FS, who says it, uh, it almost re- resembles sedimentary rock because you can see the different CIOs in the bank's history and the different tech choices that have been made. And lead, it, it never goes away. It just gets another layer on top of it and sort of changes shape. I mean, Peter, it might be worth talking a little bit about some of your experience and the types of stuff you've done in your career and and some of the things that you've seen that led you to where you are? Well, it's kind of interesting, right? So when I first came to the US in 93, we started out building a new core banking system, the first one on Windows. And we thought, hey, revolution, there are Windows computers and you don't have green screens and so on, which was pretty big deal. And Windows 3.1 had just come out and was like kind of amazing, but it blew up all the time. So you had blue screen of death, three-fingered salute and all that stuff. However, we started with a revolutionary, crazy idea that you'd manage the whole banking system around this thing called a customer. And the first table we built was called RM underscore account, relationship management account. And then there was DP underscore account for deposit accounts and LN underscore account for loan accounts. And that was the whole table architecture. We did everything that way. But it was amazing because like when we did our first conversion, like I want to say July of 1994, so 18 months later, we realized that the core banking system we were converting from, all of the customer data like username or address and all of that sort of customer information, first name, last name, et cetera, was in every deposit table and every loan table and everything else. The whole design was super flat and super denormalized and super complicated to actually then figure out what is the right relationship between users and customers. Anyway, revolution later, a couple hundred banks still running the software that we wrote 25 years ago. And when we started the company, the goal was to get rid of these old systems that were built in the 60s and 70s on AS400s, which were modern back then in 94, and System 36s. And we even converted, I think, someone off a of System 34, which like, do you know how old that thing is? It's super old. Fast forward today, lots of my team and the team that we worked with still works on the same software that we built back then, still has my source code fingerprints all over it. And the system we were trying to replace, they all still exist. So Ultradata, which was started writing in 1977, it's still in production. Do you know how weird that is? Like you actually have to go forensically looking for hardware and you find mechanics to put the thing together because it's like custom hardware. It's insane. And so you talk about the Neolithic age, you can actually just sort of go back through the history of modern software architecture and technology and find you know the remnants. And you see at the really big banks, you see this extraordinarily represented And you have Chase, who's been really smart, and they have one of everything. There's only one core banking system. There's one deposit system. There's one loan system. Compare that to B of A, and they have at least three, if not four, of everything. And then you sort of go backwards in time, and you look at the banks like SunTrust and BB&T and so forth with their conversion that they're doing together. And they have a two-year, multi-hundred million dollar project just to merge the two systems. And everyone else would say, amazing, cool, how, how amazing they're on this cool tech stack but they're merging into a system that was written in like 1985. That's the update. And that's the crazy thing, isn't it? And Simon Vance Kalina, you have some experience of working with, you're starting again almost with a blank sheet of paper. You were there with, with the guys in Monzo in the early days, like thinking, why didn't you just pick something off the shelf from 1985? Surely that would do the job. Yeah, I mean, Tom was a big fan of like first principles thinking and we, we got somebody in who actually worked at IBM and built the last you know core banking systems back in the 80s. And 
And he came in and explained to us about how they were supposed to work. He's like, you do all these things and then there's going to be an end of day batch. And that's where you do all these other things. And, mm. and I remember like... Batch processing. It's yeah, such a thing. I remember Ollie and Matt just being like, do, do we do we need the end of day batch? Like, why, why wouldn't we just build this thing real time? Like, why wouldn't we just make this thing run continuously? And, you know, they did. There's no there's no end of day batch process at Monzo. It, it runs 24-7 continuously. What you said about Conway's law, you and it isn't true for Monzo. There are... 1600 microservices when I left a year ago. I imagine it's probably closer to 3000 now, and there certainly aren't 3000 developers. So Conway's law is definitely not true there. And what you said, uh, sorry, about Neolithic and Stratolithic architectures in banks, I think that the, another important consideration that everybody forgets is they're really, they're macrolithic. They're made up of big rocks. They're made up of big rocks, and those big rocks were quite often supplied by vendors that don't exist anymore or relationships have gone, they've moved on. Like most bank architectures, they have layers, like you said, yeah, at, you know, added over the years, but they also have these big immovable chunks they can't dare touch because because the vendor relationships don't exist to repair them. Yeah. I think another thing to layer in is in the US in particular, some of these barriers were built by legislation. So until Glass-Steagall fell in 2001, 2000, it was illegal for a retail bank to own a brokerage and or an insurance company. And so when the law changed, suddenly you had Citibank becoming Citigroup, buying Smith Barney, buying Travelers. And all of that transition occurred, but all the technology was built assuming those barriers that were like legally barriered. So you actually had to have the customer in multiple places just because. And I think that's a really good point. So where you end up is you've got the customer in multiple places. These systems, I think that's a really good nuanced point, Simon, that the systems have millions of lines of code that nobody understands all of, that banks are spending massive amounts of money to try and refactor and make modern, but you can never get it to work. So your choices historically were try and convert off of that system onto a new one, which you know has to happen over a weekend in an outage and can go horribly wrong and is career ending, or start again. I mean, it, it really is a very, very difficult situation. And not only do you have one of these massive, massive rocks of 2 million lines of code, you might have 8, 10, or if you're a big global bank, maybe you've got 5 or 6 of those in 75 different countries. So the scale of the problem is really, really big, but you could do a lot with that. Yeah, it's, but it's not inevitable. I think that's the important thing. Is that that's, that's only happened because historically we didn't have access to microservices architecture, but microservices now will stay smaller. So in the future, when you need to replace part of a legacy system, you're replacing a much smaller component. I think that's, it's not it's not inevitable that older organizations will end up with sort of these big architectures that are removable. It's, it's, it's just a historical accident. It's just because we went from buying single big mainframe computers, whereas if we bought large numbers of, of uh, tiny little computers like we do now in the cloud, Monzo doesn't have three application servers or four application servers or even eight application services distributed at three data centers. Monzo has you know, on any given day, 1,600 application servers, basically, running in Kubernetes, running across thousands of microservices. New, and that's a really important point, isn't it? That, like, it was almost like the way you did resilience historically was to make the service ever bigger and ever more robust because that was all networks allowed you to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with what Simon's saying there. And, and actually, for me, you know, a lot of this is the economics, right? So historically, economically, you couldn't uh, scale out thousands of small services. Right? That, that just wasn't, you know, the deployment model required you to you know, physically boot up this server, FTP onto it, so on and so forth. Economically, the most efficient way to do it was to take a big server. So what did everyone do? They went out and bought your, your IBM mainframes or your big sunboxes or whatever. And if, you, and if you ran out of space, you just bought a bigger one. And, you know, it wasn't until, I guess, you know, we all know it sort of, uh, 
you know, I suppose the, the Googles of this world who suddenly made it realization that the, they, they got too big for these big boxes and they had to scale out sideways and suddenly they had to solve the problem of these lots of small microservices, which then made it actually possible with things like originally Marathon and then, and then Kubernetes and so on and so forth. Actually, you can now got a substrate you can deploy these, these microservices onto. Suddenly, you know, Simon says, you can suddenly have 1,600 or 3,000 microservices working. You know, again, in these in these sort of small feature teams that are focused over owning, I don't know, how, whatever fraction of those microservices, right? But the, the economics of that deployment model, and banks are stuck in an old-fashioned economic model that requires big bang deployments, big bang governance processes, you know, a release every X weeks or whatever it is, you know, whereas a startup, Monzo, I don't know, Simon, release every 20 seconds or something, I'm making up a random number there, right? Something like that, yeah. yeah. Yep. It's actually, I was, I was um, talking to a big bank board um, over the last couple of days and um, I mentioned something. Uh, Monzo's actually has an early warning indicator for the uh, second and third line of defense. If the frequency of deployments drops, that's actually an early warning indicator that's reported to the board. So if, if Monzo is unable to deploy, you know, at the current cadence, you know, whatever it is, 50, 50 deployments per day, that's actually something that gets reported to the board and has to be dealt with. Can I just pause there for a second? 50 deployments per day, 10 deployments per day really compares, Peter, to the once a month, once a quarter that you would see in a lot of organizations. And I want to pick up on something Ewan said, because he said something really important. Like, it's actually governance and funding models and culture and project management and program management. So it's almost like they're trying to use the machine that kept the the big rocks, as, as Simon put it, running and then oh, go buy some consultancies and do a microservice in a corner somewhere. Like, have you seen this try and play out? And, and have you seen anybody do that well? So when we were at Yodley, we were dealing with all the big retail banks. So B of A, Chase, Wells, you know, American Express, Fidelity. And they all had release windows and they all had only shipped software on Tuesdays and, and only, you know, at 11 p.m. at night and stuff like this. And it was all driven by giant program offices. So in some ways, like you can you can spot the death of a corporation in tech if they have a thousand people in program management. And I, I suspect there's probably five thousand people in program management at B of A. Because all those people are doing is creating project plans for other people to look at what the system is doing. And good luck creating a project plan for your 50 deployments an hour, Simon. Like people's brains would melt. But I think that's a really good point, right? Because in order to get to 50 deployments, you, they're not the same size as the as the one thing you did per quarter. So you needed all of those program managers when you could only go once per quarter. Yeah. But actually, by reducing the size of change, you increase the pace of change. But you don't necessarily increase the risk because, again, of the like redundancy you get when you're massively parallel. So, Simon, talk to me about what that means. But Simon, how do you do QA? How do you do QA? How do you make sure it doesn't break? But, Simon, can you unpack that for me? Because, like, how do you do product-driven QA, how do you push that closer to the teams? So you don't try and reduce the likelihood of failure, you reduce the cost of failure, right? So when you make a deployment, you deploy one microservices, you're like, oh, it's erroring, it's throwing errors in the logs, boom, roll back, that's it. Takes takes 10 seconds to put it in, takes 10 seconds to pull it back out. And there's no customer interruption there. And the person who wrote the code deploys the code the day they wrote the code. So it's still fresh in their mind. They know exactly what it is. Like companies that do agile, that don't do DevOps, don't take it all the way through to continuous deployment and don't follow the rule that the person who wrote the code deploys the code. They're just setting themselves up for failure, 
right? They just they just they're acting DevOps. They're gonna have they're gonna end up with all of this great work being done in the development teams and in this long release train that guarantees that the people have forgotten what it was that they've just the change they made three weeks ago have to go back to work on a branch, redeploy an old version to the staging environment to fix any bugs they find. You're just setting yourself up for an absolute failure. The way it works is the person who writes the code deploys the code and it happens every single day. So it's always continuously working and the average lag between something, you know, leaving the, the programmer's fingers and going into the staging environment and being tested, you know, in a staging environment is sort of one day and then deploy to production the next day. And if it works, it stays in and then you go back and you do the next tiny incremental but still valid change set. So you take the smallest possible changes and you move them continuously in the shortest period of time. And then, you know, things still break. But like when you tell war stories, you go, oh man, today was such a hard day. In Monzo, you talk, tell war stories about one day. In, you know, other banks, you'll tell war stories about like, that was the worst five years of my life. <laughs> But, but that's the thing. So I, I'm curious, Peter, you must have seen the annual budget cycles where a strategy team will get in a strat house who will say words like DevOps, and then the roadmap is developed, and then program teams fight with each other for what gets to be on the roadmap rather than is what gets to deliver to the customer any good. Is there a different way to organize that you have to think about outside of the tech team? Because I feel like the tech teams often get blamed for being slow, but it's not engineering or software or... There's no, it's not like you can type faster. Throwing more people at it with typewriters is not the issue here. Have you seen anybody do that well or, or have you experienced doing that well and what's the main differences? I think the key thing is to integrate all the supply chain of something going to a consumer. So it's all great, well and good to build something, but if you don't have a marketing campaign, if you don't have education, you don't have all the things surrounding it so that the new user sees this new thing and they say, great, I want to get that new debit card or I want to buy this new credit card product, whatever, everything breaks. And I think the challenge for many companies is they may even get to the agile side of the engineering, which is great, but then everything breaks when it's like, how do we orchestrate a television ad campaign or something like that? And I think if the, the really smart folks are moving all of the experience to real-time or continuous updates. So instead of having $100 million on a Super Bowl ad, they're doing 50 daily YouTube videos that explain new features, new products, things that are coming to market and so on. And if you can't do that, you get stuck in the same routine of, okay, well, it makes no difference what we do on engineering. We have to hold it all back because we don't want anyone to see it until we're ready to launch it. And we're not ready to launch it until the comms and policy people look at it and then the lawyers and everyone else. So the, the trick the, where the best successful companies integrate the whole experience to the end state. And we've talked a little bit about um, that integration of, of uh, what, does that, what does that look like for you on a day-to-day -day basis? It, how does that differ from, from what, we've, uh, what we've seen historically? Well, with our team at Uber, we were really lucky that we actually organized each team to be vertically together. So we had product marketing, design, engineering, product management, you name it, everything all in one group, data science too. And they were all autonomous. So the team in Amsterdam that was doing Uber Wallet and new features for checkout and so forth, they shipped when they were ready. It was great. I got to see what was happening, but there was no control point or vector around it. They were autonomous. And because they were vertically integrated, they had the whole supply chain of the experience. They could make unilateral decisions and ship. Macro Uber also had corporate comms and policy to make sure we didn't do something completely ridiculous. But the overall architecture of the team was these vertically integrated pods across the globe working on independent features. 
And I think a lot of times where things blow up is where the teams are in different geographies. And, you know, this is still pre-pandemic lifestyle, but even different geographies matters, even on Zoom, getting in the room together, jamming on an idea, and then taking it all the way to completion so much faster and it yields much better results. And I think that's so different to a bank's historic central new product approval process, that it's like a gauntlet that bankers have to run through and project managers have to run through to get anything live, where you bring in all of these stakeholders from fraud and compliance and market risk and marketing, and they all can say no, but nobody gets to say yes. And so you've got to get 15 not no's. And then you've got to do that on a monthly basis per release. And it, it just becomes like a, an absolute production machine. Ewan, what are your thoughts on the machine changing? So, I mean, I think one of the one of the interesting, you know, if you look at us, who has done this well? Actually, I think if you look at Amazon and the way that Amazon have changed over 20 years, right? So Amazon originally was a big monolithic system. They, they had a system called Obidos, and you would have seen that in the URLs they originally had. That was a big C++ type type application. And, and that scaled for, for several years, right? They get developers working on it, it, so on and so forth. At some point, it got so big that actually, because they were trying to do, as Simon was talking about, continuous deployment, continuous integration, so many engineers trying to change this code and, and roll it out, you know, stuff was going wrong. Typically, it goes wrong in, in, in the database, the people overwriting data structures and so on and so forth. And so they put, you know, a big sort of guard around the outside, the CTO and a few, a few couple of DB engineers to, to, to stop people coming through. What that did was it slowed, you know, changes on, on Obidos down. And, and you know, I understand, you know, Jeff Bezos is, he's the ultimate god in that organization, effectively mandated that he, they realized that the fundamental problem here was that if you, if you make changes, I mean, it impacts on everywhere else. It's that dependency chain that, that flows through the organization. So actually, you know, they, they were, I guess, the archetypal people who originally, they, you know, they went to sort of two, uh, two pizza teams, so the idea that you have a team that focuses on two pizzas. I know they've moved off that now to, 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 to move on to, to other, other structures, but effectively, you know, to that small team sport, having people that can own a thing end to end, you know, the teams have proper metrics around that they control this particular area. They then have also worked hard to flush out that end to end dependency chain because it's, it's all very well that you can make your chain, but if it then depends on something else further down the line, you know, you then have to get them to do it, it goes in their backlog and so on and so forth. It doesn't matter if you're agile, the system as a whole is, is not agile. I love that point about dependencies because that's why you need a change management team to map and deal with all of that stuff. But actually, if you have a change management team and you say the word agile a lot, it doesn't make you agile. You've got to have an ability for the architecture, the funding, the operating model, as you described it, Peter, vertically integrated as being this this complete discrete team that has massive autonomy on from, from idea to customer all the way through. And that's just not compatible with a lot of org structures. But I think Simon B, Simon von Scalina had the, the right feedback, which is it requires a really strong investment in the architecture that protects that, that team from making a mistake that blows up the universe. I may have worked on a project, I'm not going to say what it was, where uh, someone working on the software may or may not have uh, increased the revenue of a company I was working at by 100x by failing to remember the golden rule of monetary fields in financial services, which is you don't carry decimal points, you have to remember to divide by 100. And that was, I mean, it was fun. Suddenly the revenue went up 100x for like an hour. But then it was like really not fun when we had to like undo it all and realize, you know, we'd had problems throughout the ecosystem. But we figured it out within an hour. I, I think we really figured it out in about eight minutes. And then people were like, wow, is someone running a promotion? Because, you know, sometimes these things happen. And then we're like, 
no, everything's up by 100x. And, and suddenly we figured it out and we backed it out in like an hour. It wasn't too bad. But we had a, a pretty good DevOps. We had a pretty good SRE team that could see those things happening. We didn't have the automation that Simon's talking about where it would just automatically back it out. I uh, wish we did. That would have been even better. But the awareness of what's happening in your infrastructure is what gives the developer the safety net to say, I'm just going to ship stuff. And if it blows up, it'll be backed out automatically. I don't have to figure it out. Yeah, there's a huge advantage to starting a company basically in the post-Kubernetes era, right? Like AWS was mind-blowing when it came out. It was incredible. And it's you know still improving and it's still incredible. But Google have come along and basically taken the crown jewels of their of their technology infrastructure and made it available to everybody. And it's just incredible. Like my company now, Fronted.Rent, is less than a year old and we copy the same architecture as Monzo. So we use a thing called the Firehose. So absolutely everything that happens goes into BigQuery. And we can basically answer any question about the business at all. Like at every single question you want to know about Fronted, you can get data from the, from the, from BigQuery and just throw up graphs. And it's as good as, you know, and companies that have spent more time, you know, companies spent billions of pounds trying to, to build data lakes and analytics teams and, and to get this level. And it's just kind of the default now. I don't know how you catch up when there's been this paradigm shift of technology that just gives new entrants such an incredible advantage over people who came before. Ewan, how do you catch up? Because the Big Bang seems to not be the, the way forward. Are there other ways to, to get it done? What, what would you say if it's kind of you, you're stuck with your own architecture? How do you move forward from that? I think Simon's exactly right. It, it's incredibly hard to catch up. I think that, you know, as you say, trying to just rip it all out and replace it, that never works. It's career ending. I think you kind of have several options. One, do you spin something off into the, to the side? Is it a greenfield type proposition? So you know, do you build a frontier off to, the, to, to there and actually then try and work out how to shift customers over? I guess you've seen, if you take a big bank, RBS with Metal, for example, actually try and build a new SME bank off to the side. You know, you, you've got other ways of doing it. You might try and take a thin slice through the organization and, and try and hive off that particular thing. So make it sort of a pseudo greenfield that's, that's on top of a brownfield proposition. You know, to Peter's point, actually get an end-to-end -end flow working through there and, and try to get some, some cultural change. The other thing you might want to do is, is sort of put cleave lines through the organization and actually try and break it up. So, you know, nationwide are talking about things like the speed layer. Actually, just that, that breakage point between uh, an API level uh, capability so you can start to change things above the, the platform and things below the platform. Because that, that's where the power of APIs and, and so on and so forth sit in. You know, once you've got an API in, you can change stuff underneath it. Do you start to also then make things a lot more event-driven? So um, I'm curious to know how, how the big query stuff works, Simon. You know, I guess that everything flowing through the system is effectively event-driven. So what really matters is a proper some data semantics of what those events are. You know, so your transactions mean this, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That can then go to big query, and you can start then doing the you know, sort of data analytics there. You know, the the data. You know, to Peter's point earlier about sort of. It, it requires a proper architectural oversight. That's that's a proper understanding semantically of what the business is, what 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 events mean, and so on and so forth. And I think that if you're you know if you're trying to start from here, you're in a problem. I, I would seriously consider actually a spin out of some type and, and, and greenfield it because you know the the governance processes and the, and the business organisation will just stop you. You know, three people in fronted will build a lot more than three hundred people in tier one bank, right? I think that's a great point. I'm going to pause us here and come back to events because I think being event-driven and event-driven architectures is super powerful, especially when you think about it from an audit standpoint. But we do have to hear from our sponsors, so we're just going to take a quick break and we shall be right back. 
11FS is supported by Banking Circle. Connect to the fastest, most cost-efficient and transparent payment solution available in the market. Our brand new podcast is here. In Under the Hood, we lift the lid on the banking infrastructure that's shaking up the financial services industry. In partnership with Synapse, we'll explore a different area of banking tech every Thursday and talk to experts around the world. Head to your favorite podcast app and follow Under the Hood to catch the latest episode. Thank you so much to our sponsors. In the last section today, we're just going to talk a little bit about what banks can do to uh, get to this future. You and just before the break was starting to talk about the shift in you know, your options, your path forward. We don't believe in rip and replace, I think, collectively around the table here, the virtual table. There's more sort of taking a thin slice or, or putting a shim in place that, that really kind of uh, puts a speed layer in and, and something along those lines. But you mentioned the term event-driven. I don't know if Peter or Simon, one of you guys wants to, to unpack pack what that really means versus traditional architectures and, and earlier software norms. Event-driven architecture is a sort of, it's closely associated with distributed systems engineering. It's the idea that instead of updating a database and saying, you know, the customer's address, you know, insert into or update into customer address, this is the new customer's address. Instead of doing that, what you do is you just fire an event that says customer.address updated. Um, and what it means is that you can you can really scale event-driven architecture a lot faster because you don't have contention or row locking or anything like that. You don't need a bigger database because you've got more customers. You just have more servers that fire more events. And then what you do is you sort of, after the fact, you know, if you want to ask answer a question like where does the customer live now, what you do is you look through all of the customer.address updated events and find the last one, you know. And event-driven architecture is how Monzo is built um, things like if you want to know what somebody's balance right now, like how much money do they have in their bank account right now, what you actually do is you sum up every transaction that's ever happened on their account. So you start with the day they open the account and you sum all the way through to the present day. And it, you know, computers are fast. It happens in, in, a, in a few milliseconds and you don't even notice it. It's a really, really powerful thing because it forces you to build an architecture that can handle this fire hose of events. And once you're comfortable handling events and making sure that they're processed in the correct order and that they're all captured and none of them are ever lost, then you can use it for so much more than just the things you think. You can use it for like every time somebody opens a screen or taps a button or hits the help button or gets confused and closes the app. You can time and measure and you know know everything about your entire company all because you're using the same event stream. I think it's a really powerful thought. One of the things that I came across as well is because you have this now perfect record of everything that's happened, even if the current state is different to what it was previously, um, or you've had to go in and make an administrative change, you've got this record. So should you ever need to replay it to a regulator, everything that's happened in your system is there and, and almost unchangeable in, in a way. You and I want to talk a little bit about sort of moving from uh, that siloed approach to, to horizontals as well, because event-driven architectures start to help us move that way really sort of breaking things down uh, in different ways help us move that way. How, how does that differ? You always talk about the kind of KYC system, the payment systems and all of those sorts of things. Can they be genuinely made more horizontal and more shared? Yeah, I think um, effectively what you've got is you're moving from a monolithic world to um, to a service-based world. And actually that service-based world probably isn't the end stop. What you really need to be building those services out of is it's a set of underlying primitives you know, actually what is it that you can, the, the base level primitives for these architectures that they can be recombined into those higher level services or whatever. So, you know, the, the obvious example would be the way that the cloud providers have historically built their systems. You know, typically, historically, you would have gone to IBM or, or someone or, or you know, and bought a whole bunch of servers and racked and stacked them and so on and so forth. 
cost you a lot of money, taking a long time to rack and stack. Amazon comes along, they give you compute as a service, EC2, they give you storage as a service, S3, they give you IO, et cetera, so on and so forth. And then from that, you can combine them into higher level capabilities. The analogy for banking with me is that at the moment people buy systems that are, you know, your retail banking system or your credit card system or whatever, actually underneath it all, the underlying thing is ubiquitous across everything, is a, is a store of value. And actually the ability to move money in and out, which is payment rail access and so on and so forth. And actually what you really probably want to do is start breaking the bank down into these low-level primitives from an architectural perspective that can then be recombined into, into different things. So what really matters is this ability to take those low-level primitives, the ability to then can recombine them into different products so that actually you can come up with something that looks a bit like a credit card but that has a, has a I don't know, a mortgage capability. I'm, I'm making stuff up on the fly, right? But it, it, you can come up with these weird hybrid models but that are, are, are based on underlying capabilities. And then, you know, these are effectively the service teams that, you know, there should be proper organizational structure around it to run this particular primitive, which takes us back to the Conway's that we'll start off with. You know, actually the feature team and the, and the system underneath it owns these, these low-level services. And then actually, as, you know, as Peter and Simon have both said, as you move up the stack, different feature teams own different components. You've now got a system that's working end-to-end, plus each of these systems is firing out their own events. So, you know, the, the, the raw level event for, for a ledger update actually is a thing that would go into Simon's big query database along with the raw level event from identity system I can now work out what what Peter has spent as a customer yeah and and that combination gets really really powerful once you get maximum reuse from left to right wherever you are in the architecture the other thing that I find interesting there was a great blog post I saw recently by Packy McCormick who, who had the line in it which is imagine if I could give you nine lines of code and you could hire the Collison brothers to be in your finance team that's where we are with sort of uh, API driven businesses today and obviously Stripe has now hit $95 billion in valuation and has gone on to do really well and probably can't do everything a bank can do, but is, you know, give them time, who knows. Peter, talk to me about the role of specialists and the new state of like the vendor landscape in banking, because it looks quite different to what it maybe did in the 90s. Look, I think sort of dovetailing a little bit on what Ewan was saying, at the core of all of these platforms is some sort of immutable ledger that represents a balance that belongs to an account, whether that account is a general ledger, as in some sort of roll-up of balances, or an actual deposit balance or a credit balance and so on. I think the, the challenge for most core banking systems and platforms is they try and put more and more stuff in the ledger instead of actually staying away from the ledger and the ledger being really dumb and it just has a balance, maybe a transaction date and stuff like that, and no one else gets to mess with it. And I'm, I'm guilty of this. Uh, Chris, my CTO, he's like, Peter, no, I'm not putting that in the ledger. I'm like, but it belongs in the ledger. And he's like, no, it doesn't. It belongs over there. And I'm like, okay, that's why you're the CTO and I'm the nerd. But what happens is there is specialization of business logic understanding. So credit cards actually, and the rules of paying off loans and stuff like that, those things are hard. And so having understanding of the business logic or the the product choices you could make about how to pay transactions, first the biggest ones versus the smallest ones, or paying them in terms of date sequencing and stuff like this. So Simon's real-time system is is awesome, except when you get a system that's not real-time talking to it, like a batch file from the ACH. And you're like, now what do you do? Treading on dangerous territory there, Peter, when you talk about Bank of America applying payments in the, uh, the order that will guarantee them to make the most amount of money on overdraft charges. Oh, hang on now, hang on now. But that's so that your mortgage gets paid. <laughs> And, and it's okay if your cell phone bill does not <laughs> and will generate overdraft fees. But, but in any event, 
when you have asymmetric systems, some that are batch and some that are real time, someone has to sit there and say, what am I going to do? And the logic and the understanding of that is the specialization that is actually really interesting. And right now there's been tons of investment on the deposit side of the world. So most neobanks, Monzo included, had a lot of work getting the simulation of a checking account or a deposit or a demand account, whatever you want to call it in Europe, working really, really well. You can go to an ATM, you can pay, it's a stored value, it's all that stuff. And then over time, all of the neobanks have realized you can't really make that much money with deposits because you're not really a bank yet. And you need to do this thing called lending. And they all go, well, lending's way harder. Who knows how to do that? And like, and there's so many more regulations to protect the consumer. Lending is actually way easier when you are a real-time bank. That's true. Right? Like That's true. Monzo, can, if, you, if your repayments are supposed to, I mean, I know this because Fronted is, is not a real-time lender. Like we, we process our repayments by, by backs. And half of the rules that we have to deal with are what happens if a payment should have come out on a Friday, but it's a public holiday on a Monday, and then the customer doesn't have any account, money in their account on Tuesday, but you retrade it on Wednesday. Like, should the customer mm-hmm. pay interest? Like, there's all of these rules. When we're at Monzo, we're just like, it's Sunday at three o'clock in the morning and the customer's you know, repayments due, we'll just take it out of their account. Yeah, we had the same thing at Uber where we moved to a real-time payment to the deposit account. Yeah. So the innovation of Uber Money was after every trip, we deposited money into your bank account. There's no delay. And everyone's like, you can't do that. And we're like, yes, you can. Real-time makes everything easier to reason about. Except for the one thing that like Visa and MasterCard and everyone else, they're all batch. And they say they're real-time because there's an auth thing that happens, but that auth isn't even real. It shows up the next day. Mm. And so you've got like all these complexities that systems and specialists yeah. need to have the secret cookbook. So auth, so you, you, you're mostly right, except that auth for Monzo is real time. Cool. Monzo built their own card issuer and we actually apply the hold on the customer's account like at the same time that we actually say we aren't working anymore. But they, they, like auth is real time for Monzo because Monzo built their own card processor. So it doesn't even arrive at the end of the day. That's why your Monzo bank balance is up to date and you can't overspend. And because we can prevent you from overspending because it is real time, we can give cards to people that other banks don't want to give money to yep. because you can't rip Monzo off because it's, auth is real time. Everything's easier to reason about if it's real time. Except for when that merchant is offline. Yeah, that sucks. Or they get the knuckle duster out and that's America, and you guys have chip and pin, blah, blah, blah. That really stopped happening when Apple Pay came out, though, because Apple Pay and Android Pay is always online. It's always real-time. So that old world is mostly gone now. But, yeah, I remember that. I remember with the first Monzo cards that came out, we would try and use them in the, in the, in the shop, Silvio's, the little, uh, little, uh, little cafe near Monzo's old headquarters. And you could tell if you were the first Monzo customer to go in there because yep. the, the card machine would have gone offline. And when you tried to use your Monzo card, everyone else behind you would be like, oh, why does Monzo take so long? Because Monzo was forcing the card ready to go back online. Doesn't happen anymore, though. ISO 8583, that's all I have to say. <laughs> it was, and, and that's it. It's these quirks of the underlying financial infrastructure that exist no matter how modern your internal technology is. But it feels to me like your internal technology, if it is event-driven, if it is microservices-based, can really get you there. But your path to get there really varies. And there are lots of specialists that you then need to figure out how do you rent and assemble the specialists that manage some of the harder stuff. you got to figure out how you break what you do down into its smallest constituents parts and then you've got to figure out how you organize yourself around all of that kind of good stuff so um, believe it or not um, we have crunched through the time and I think that wraps us up for today um, but we are just going to very briefly hear from Kristen Brown over at Google Cloud to get some of her thoughts hey Kristen welcome to Fintech Insider Insights thanks for joining us how are you doing today 
I'm doing well. How are you, Simon? Really good. So glad to have you on the show. At last, we've been trying to get you for a little while. Excited to have you here. We've been speaking to a bunch of folks about banking architecture and how banking technology is structured, and love to get some of your thoughts. But just remind everybody uh, what you do and some of your background. Sure. Um, I work inside Google Cloud. I'm the technical lead for our global financial services solutions team. So what's that's the fancy way of saying I head up working on our strategy and actually the build out of our vertical products for financial services inside of cloud. And I guess you've had some good experience looking inside of one or two financial services companies in the time you've been doing that. Just a few. Just a a few. (laughs) So what are you seeing as the biggest challenges that banks are facing with their tech architecture, their move to cloud, all of that good stuff? Well, we're in unprecedented times, right? So my, my answer probably, if you ask me this, you know, March 4th to, to, you know, 2020 versus, you know, March 4th now in 2021 are kind of different, right? So the pandemic has, has definitely drastically changed, you know, the way things are happening. But unfortunately, banks and financial institutions are still, you know, hung up on the old way of, of you know, typical on-prem architecture and uh those who haven't adopted the cloud are really struggling, right? Because when your offices are closed, your branches are closed, your businesses are closed, right? You're you're running up against it. Uh, so those who have adopted, you know, how how do we handle always on, uh, you know, and always ready globally types of architectures? You know, they're they're doing pretty well. And those those who haven't have um, really had to you know start spending some serious capital dollars <laughs> to catch up. And talk to me about what it looks like at like the next level down. You talked about on-prem. When you're talking about an on-prem architecture, what are the assumptions about what that means? Let's say a bank has built this in the 70s, 80s, 90s. What are they sort of dealing with inside their data centers? What, what does that look like? Well, a lot of what they have is mainframe technologies, right? So there, there's a lot of still have, mm-hmm. have gone into. And my fun fact is I didn't. You know, I'm an ex-IBMer, right? So I'm part of the problem of the COBOL error, as I tell everybody. And But to still walk in and see how much, right, of, of those types mm-hmm. of systems mm-hmm. um, for some of their core applications. So they've just, you know, been surviving on uh, patching or, or, you know, doing extensive, these long lead projects, right, that, that takes sometimes two, three years to try to modernize those those legacy applications. So, you know, walking into that and, and basically getting, you know, people to understand that, they need to actually rethink, not just, you know, refactor all the time. Yeah. I, and that's a great point. Rethink, not refactor. Because like the IBM stuff, when it was when it was new, was cutting edge. Absolutely. And it made a lot of sense. Yep. And now things have changed. So there's this wonderful thing called containerization, Kubernetes, Kafka. Like these are buzzwords and they're jargon, but they're super important to a bank strategy. Talk to me about like why Google invented those things and what it enabled Google to do and how people might be able to use something like that. Well, first, right, part of Google's principles is we are always open source first, right? That's the point is how do you have open architecture, open development cycles? Because interoperability and the fact that, you know, don't want to have that lock-in, right? So you can you have to, you need to be flexible and be able to move, right? As your architecture and your and your technology needs to move. So that was the initial premise, especially behind Kubernetes, right? Is how do we have a true serverless, containerized platform so that you can you know shift where the technology needs to lead versus you being led by the technology, right? So that you can have that flexibility that maintains your core business, but being able to adapt, you know, pretty quickly as you go through. 
And there's something powerful about, as well, the size of change. Like if you have a mainframe and it's like 2 million lines of code, then in its complexity is really, really hard. So to manage that complexity, you build a change release cycle that's monthly or quarterly. You take the whole thing down. You yeah. plan it with military precision. Actually, by sort of putting things into containers and making them all smaller, like how do you, how do you coordinate all of that? How do you deal with the coordination mess between all of that? And what are some of the benefits? Yeah, well, it, it's actually, <laughs> the orchestration is actually kind of easier, right? Because you have that flexibility that you don't have to take the whole thing down, right? You can actually micro-select, right? You have sets of microservices versus this macro, you know, ESB that has, to, the whole system has to come down, right, to, to pop in another service. It's actually easier to manage because you have, you can do at the micro-complexity level, right? You don't have to have these, okay, we're scheduling on the third Thursday through Saturday, you know, of the month <laughs> to take down the entire, you know, our ATMs are all going offline or, you know, we're going to have to suspend trading, make sure we fit the window for, you know, that the, the entire, you know, a trade book is, is tied off and everything's, you know, consolidated by the time we start the change window on Saturday and finish by Sunday so that when the market's open, right, we're, we're ready to go. When you have microservices, right, and, and the containerization structure, you can actually have a more granular, right? And and it's one of those you have the flexibility right now in your change windows that, you know, if you're updating one one part of your business, you don't have to take the, you know, all the other services that are connected down at the same time. I mean, I think that's incredible because it gives you a couple of benefits, right? If I want to just change one shelf, one window, one bit of my house, I don't have to take take the whole house offline. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like I can still use my front door. I can still use the fridge. Like, I'm just changing yep. a window over here. But it's just like it's not like I have to get out of the house entirely unless I'm doing something really massive. But even then, like that modular change is really powerful. But it, often I I observe that a lot of banks are trying to bring that modular change on top of the old sort of monolith. So you've got this two million lines of code, and then oh, you yeah. put these modular things on top Absolutely. of it and you're not necessarily getting some of the benefit of it so talk to me about event-driven architectures event streaming what is that well see so you see you're talking to the the the, the wrong lady because i'm going to give you because I, I i drink the api kool-aid mm -hmm. right so I, you know hey hence the shirt right mm. i i come from the apogee uh front that's how i got to google so mm. that's the beauty in my opinion of like having the whole API, the thoughts around API ecosystems, mm -hmm. right, is you can almost hide and put a facade, right? That's the point is to give the facade so that I'd love to use the example of the Wizard of Oz, right? That's kind of the magic that things like APIs give you is you can, you know, show the crowd the, the smokes and the mirrors and the flashing lights and ooh, ah, it's, you know, all this great, wonderful things. But really in the back end, you know, there's your mainframe where there's the one guy, you know, pumping the pedals doing all those. <laughs> so you can uh, obfuscate that, right, from the from the actual end systems and then make those updates, right? So having thinking of those kind of strategies where you can try to mitigate a lot of that and, and using like API management platforms and, and things like uh, we have Apogee, right, to, to do those kind of things. It helps you modernize your front end while you're figuring, you know, because a lot of them are still trying to figure it out, right? How do we not break everything and, and make those changes? Mm -hmm. And how do we start with the two million lines of code, take the first million, <laughs> right? And then, you know, go after the second million uh, in, a, in a more structured fashion, right? Not not so militaristic, but giving them flexibility, knowing they have to 
to handle those things. Well, and the core used to be doing product and it used to be doing reporting and it used to be yeah. doing general ledger and treasury and all of that stuff. And actually, the more of that you can unpack into smaller pieces, the better. And then the more of that you can hide from the front end, the better. But yes. then the optionality that gives you, like you said, is you've got those APIs is if you do have this new world you're building off to the side, then you can start to create something that yep. from a customer experience standpoint looks and feels the same, whether you're doing that on a new call, whether you're doing that on your existing call, that sort of shim layer that sits over the top becomes really, really crucial. Yes, absolutely. I'm excited by what some of these banks could be able to do. Who have you seen that's doing this well? What do you think best practices really look like for putting APIs in place, getting to that modern architecture? Believe it or not, the what I call the regional, like the super regional or regional banks, I thus far of all my customers that fit into that tier are are really getting it right. And and of course, um, you know, FinTech Central, right? Look at all the FinTechs because they're starting, you know, digital first. And the thing about a lot of the the FinTechs and InsureTechs, right, that are coming through is they are actually being that transformational agent to the big, right, to the big institutions. And I think the adoption of FinTech and InsureTech, mm-hmm. right, RegTech, all of that by the bigger institutions is actually the fastest path so far that they've had so I'd probably break it out where the the bigger, you know, bigger institutions are getting it right because they're adopting, you know, the instead of the traditional used to be we have a we have the hundreds of engineers. We're just going to go build this or redo this ourselves, right? And then they know next thing you know it's it's a 3-year project and they still haven't gotten to where they want. So I think that shift of their mindset of hey, let's let's start understanding what is the right ecosystem between our, you know, fintech and suretech companies and the regional banks who are any new projects they're not trying to just bolt it on, right? They're they're doing thinking they're transformation. Doing it yes, exactly. And that's super interesting because the sort of not invented here syndrome is a really big challenge that has been there historically. Absolutely. Why would we pay somebody else to do this? We could just build it. (laughs) And actually the increasing specialism, like there are these tiny fintech vendors who do KYC really well, who do fraud management really well. Instead of it, you being, you bought all of this from one big supplier. Actually now there's five, six, seven, eight suppliers and I need to stitch all of them together. And it turns out I need an architecture that's capable of that. And I need the muscle fibers as a business to be able to do that. So it is exciting that people are starting to do that well. Are you seeing people start to move as well from just using, you know, like vertically integrated solutions that just do this lending thing to like actually picking the pieces? Like I'm doing a modern KY digital onboarding. I'm doing digital screening. I'm doing, are you seeing people start to pick off those bits and pieces of the stack as well? Yes, definitely. Right. Because a lot of them, it's a gap fit, right? Like they realize I don't have to actually replace this whole thing and try to find Right. That it's actually easier to do that integrate because they're modernizing their architecture. Right. And and they're adopting cloud. Right. So it's much easier where they both can meet in the cloud to make these things possible. Right. Where before, you know, less cloud adoption made those things a a little bit more difficult to do. But now there's like way less friction, you know, meeting each other in the cloud. That's powerful because the sort of the age old term that sends fear down any CIO or CEO's back is core transformation, yeah. right? If you're dealing with, like, you do not want to be doing uh, a transformation from one core system to another one over a weekend and changing all of the downstream systems. Actually, I can just pick off these bits and get incremental benefit, yep. but I can get the right business outcome today with the right architecture tomorrow if I'm just smart about who I work with and how I work with them. Absolutely. Yes. A lot of that's coming, right? Right. It's the work smarter, not harder, right? Like that's, 
That's it's the ad of right. How long has that been, right? Since the 1800s, right? That same phrase came out. But yes, it, that's the truth. And so, what do you think that are going to happen? Uh, what What are the skills that people need to develop to be able to get good at this sort of stuff? That I, I like the idea on you know working with some of the vendors. What are the skill sets that you've seen uh, organizations that have done this well kind of pick up? Is it something on how they deliver, who they work with? What's the What's the What are the big skills? It's a combination, right? So what, the other part too is like you see these no code, low code platforms. It's it's less so much that, you know, you, you used to be, I need an army of .NET or I need an army of Java developers, right, to make these things possible. But now the way the platforms are, it's, it's hey, who, who knows how to design the right workflows, right? Who understands what are the interactions between them? So it's, it's that kind of acumen, but also the combination of, uh, there's definitely an uptick in data science, right? Because all of this magic happens around how you have your, you know, every company, it's it's where you can get your data, how you can access the data, right, to make all the magic happen. And what I like to <laughs> tell people is, guess what, you can actually get information out of your data, right, right, today, you know, people, they have lots of data, they collect it all over the place, right, and their, their problem is, is how clean their data is, and then how do they actually call it, like, you know, go in and grab and actually call the, the the data that they need. So that's the areas of the companies who are hiring folks who help them unlock that, right? Or or working those teams has really come together. I think those two separate points are worth emphasizing as well. The no code thing really allows you to specialize on what's your intellectual property, like what makes you good as a bank yep. rather than being a great software engineering shop. Do you actually need to figure out what the workflow is that helps me get my customer and solve their problem faster for in financial services? And then the second thing is data science. What's my IP as a bank? It's my ability to manage risk Absolutely. and to do that across a diversified portfolio and balance sheet. And so getting good at data makes a ton of sense for that. Well, listen, uh, are there any other thoughts that you find that are really, really important when talking about bank architecture that we, we haven't covered? No, the only thing that I would say is, is up and coming and, and I'm, I'm looking forward to is how do we better solve the problems for the SME, SMB, mm. right? Like all the small businesses now that we're over, you know, kind of seeing a positive horizon, right, coming out of all this, it there's going to be a huge uptick in, in extra support and it's going to be around financial services is going to be super critical, right? How how do we get those ba- the small businesses right back in running, you know, as close to regular business as they were and and I'm I'm waiting to see all because I I I personally think there's going to be a whole set of new financial products that come out of this mm-hmm. to that. So I'm closely watching, you know, who are those ones coming out with those products in that space and how they're, you know, they they could shift the percentages, you know, you have, of what's core to these, you know, to running, you know, financial services. And, and um, so that's that's the area I'm, I'm, I'm looking out for right now. Exciting. I think the products that are used to exist in the 90s are not necessarily the products that are going to exist in the next 10 years. And the innovation is more around the intellectual property than the distribution. Absolutely. I think that's super exciting. Well, listen, that, that wraps us up. Kristen, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me. Look forward to, you know, spending more time with you guys. Thank you so much, Kristen, for your thoughts. That wraps up this discussion. This one probably could have gone on long into the night and involved more and more beers. Um, I've had great fun uh, listening to you guys. Thank you so much for joining me. Where can people find out more about you and what you're up to? Uh, Ewan? You can grab me on my email, ewan.rednifest.com, or find me on LinkedIn. Peter, how about you and Sinkterra? Simply Sinkterra.com, or my email is p at Sinkterra.com. So super easy. Fantastic. And Mr. Vance Kalina? Check us out on uh, fronted.rent.
definitely check them out. As for me, you can find me on at SYTaylor on Twitter or email me simon at 11fs.com. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please remember to subscribe to our podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review. It makes the show better every time you leave a review and it helps others find it too. If you want to join the conversation, find us on social media, search for 11FS Fintech Insider or email podcast at 11fs.com if you have any comments. Thank you very much and bye for now.